several months ago, I began to kind of meditate and think on this idea of stewardship. I've been in this church for almost 30 years. Last night, Caitlin asked me how old I was. I said, 29. And she said, what's after 29? I said, 28. So, uh, but uh, I've been in this church now 30 years, almost 30 years, and I've been a part of a stewardship conference every January. Um, Preachers, probably one of the best um, sermon topics that he preaches on is stewardship, um, only because... Not to say that he doesn't exemplify it in other areas of life. Like he, when he preaches on prayer, he, he's a good prayer. But, but I mean, he lives this out. I mean, he's not getting up here and just spitballing what the Bible principles of stewardship are. I mean, he lives this out. He's very generous. He's never held on to money or any type of possession with any type of clenched fist. You just ask to borrow a trailer sometime and see if you can... No, don't do that. Don't do that. I'm just kidding there. But, uh, but you see... Preacher is asked to preach on stewardship all over the nation. In fact, next week, you'll be preaching a stewardship conference. He's been preaching the same stewardship conference probably 20 years, easy, 30 years. So uh, he's been preaching that particular stewardship conference for 30 years. And uh, he's preached this all around the nation. So when I come to the topic of stewardship, it's a hair intimidating because in 30 years, there has not been a message that I could come up with that he has not already spoken on. And he probably, in fact, did a better job on it than I would have if I had to preach the same topic. So it is a bit intimidating. So this year I decided to get a head start on him, all right, and try to get ahead of him a little bit. And um, I began to meditate on what I think I've learned over 30 years of being in this church and what stewardship means to me from the Bible. You see, it doesn't matter what it means to me if it's not found in the Bible, but scripturally, in 30 years, what have I learned about stewardship? And this one word came to mind. And I'll kind of give you the thought process for how we arrived at the title for this sermon and, and kind of what was going on in my mind. This word came to mind. Trust. Trust. Now, initially, I had phrases like this running through my mind. If you don't have enough faith to get you uh, to put your tithe into the offering plate, what makes you think you're going to have enough faith to get into heaven? I have that written in the back of my Bible. That was something I learned from preacher. And that challenged me because, you know, if, if, if 10% is really the stumbling block where I struggle with, man, what's going to happen when I get to heaven? And I'm going to have to accept that all this was, was real. If I can't accept a very small thing of 10% here on earth... What makes me think my faith is valid enough to get me into heaven? And so that went through my mind. But essentially, all you're doing is trusting the Lord with your 10%. I had, uh, uh, he mentioned something last year about faith and about uh, tithing that struck me. And, and I was mentioning that to him today. Dad, you said this last year. And so, you see, all of these things are going around in my head, but... As I thought about it, the more I thought about it, the more I kept coming back to this word, trust. Trust. And then, as I meditated on it, now you may think this is a weird mind cycle, but this is the way my mind works. I I realized that it is not only a one-way trust relationship between me and the Lord. In other words, it's not just me trusting the Lord, if you believe this, which I've learned here at the church. Everything that we have is the Lord's. 
And, and hopefully, maybe your Sunday school teacher mentioned that to you this morning, or maybe last year you heard that, but hopefully in the course of your years here at the church, you have learned this very simple thing, that it's not ours to begin with. And when we give it back to the Lord, it's as if we just handed over what was already His to begin with. And so as I thought on this idea of trust, I realized it is a reciprocal relationship. It, it, it not only is us trusting Him, but the Lord gives us things that He trusts us to do what we're supposed to do with those things. In other words, He gives us time. Do you know no, time is not being created? You can't get more time than what you have. It's appointed unto man once to die. What are you doing with the time that you have? Everything that we have is borrowed time. Who is it that sings that song? I think it might be Miss Carrie Lackey. With each borrowed breath you give, Jesus, I will worship you. You see, it's every breath is borrowed. Every moment is borrowed. It is all a trust relationship. And so I realized, as I thought on this idea of trust, that everything we have is from God and He trusts us with it. And then as we give it back to Him, we are trusting that He will bless because we are faithful with what He has already trusted us with. It, is a, it, it really stuck out to me. And as I meditated on it, I kept coming back to this and kept coming back to this. And so... Here's what I try to do when I come in my mind to a a standpoint, and this is what I consider the standpoint. Our relationship with the Lord is one of trust, but his relationship with us is one of trust as well. You see, that's the standpoint. I go to the Bible to make sure I'm not outside the scope of Scripture. Because when we just get to meditating, we can get off kilter a little bit. But I found, I started to look up this idea of trust. You know, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he will direct thy paths. You see, that's a trust relationship. But that is us trusting him, is it not? So I tried to find verses that was him trusting us. As the hymn writer said, lean not unto the arm of flesh for it will fail you. And so the Lord ought not trust us with much, but as I've studied Scripture, He has trusted us with one thing in particular. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 17, this is the verse that the, the Holy Spirit brought to my mind as I thought about this. And then we'll find it's a bit of a word study tonight on this idea of entrusting Verse number 16, we'll start. The Bible says, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. The Apostle Paul here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is just simply saying, It is necessary for me to preach the gospel. Every place, every person... Any situation, I ought to look for opportunities to present the gospel to them. And the Apostle Paul did that probably better than anyone. He presented truth. And he says, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. I would be accursed. My life would be in shambles. I would have no true purpose if I, knowing what I know now, did not preach the gospel. Verse number 16, he says these words. Or verse number 17. For if I do this thing willingly, I have reward. 
But if against my will, this is the phrase I want you to see here tonight. A dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. The word there is committed unto me is found six times in scripture. It's one word. The word is pistuo. It means to commit to, or the way we would say it today is entrust. In other words, if my children ever want to come over to your house and they're bothering you and bugging you to come over to your house and you invite them over to your house and I say, okay, Caitlin, okay, Bailey, okay, Thomas, you can go over to their house. When I do that, I am entrusting you with my children. And that's a huge responsibility. I wouldn't just trust anybody with my children. If they go over to your house, I am entrusting you to take care of them. I am entrusting you to to make sure that they behave. I am entrusting you with a great responsibility. And that's what this word means. It's found again in 1 Timothy 1, verse 11. You can see that verse on the screens. The Bible says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. It's the same word there, pistuo. It means to commit to. The gospel was committed unto the apostle Paul. You'll see it again in First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians, that's what I almost said. It's like a hunting a heffalump, okay? We just watched that movie the other night. But First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. Even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. You can go on and you'll find this word again in Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 7. But contrarywise, we, they, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter. Romans chapter 3 verse 2 much every way chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. That particular verse is in reference to uh, Romans chapter 3 verse 1 where the question is posed, is it profitable to be Jewish? And it says much every way chiefly. Yeah, it's a good thing to be Jewish because unto them was given the oracles of God. You see, most every person that offered, authored scripture was uh, Jewish. And, and through the Jewish line came Jesus. And, and so it was a benefit to be Jewish. But we understand in the New Testament that there is no difference between the Jew or the Greek. There is no profit to be of the circumcision or uncircumcision. For the veil has been torn and we are all made on a level playing field at the cross. But that verse even is referencing the gospel of the Lord. Verse number, uh, our verse this evening, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 17, For if if I do this this thing willingly, I have a reward, but if against my will a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. I'll fully well acknowledge as I began to study this concept of entrusting someone with something, I expected to find at least one verse on money. And then I was going to rip your face on it, okay? (laughs) I fully well expected to find one verse on on maybe uh, children being given to you and you raising them appropriately uh, uh, for the Lord and the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I fully well expected to find those verses. 
I fully well expected to find a verse about the time that God has given you or the talents that God has given you because that's what stewardship has become to us. Time, talents, and treasures. But as I studied it, none of the verses where God trusts us with something have to do with any of those things. In fact, if you really think about it, money is nothing more than a construct of man. God didn't make money. Even Jesus said, render unto Caesar's what's Caesar's. It's not mine. God, God, God didn't make money. Now, I also believe that riches come from the Lord and uh, authority comes from the Lord and power comes from the Lord and, and there's nothing wrong with being rich. Just ask Job, the wealthiest man in the East. Just ask Abraham. They couldn't even live together because they had so many herds. Just ask many of the people in the Bible that were rich. There's nothing necessarily wrong with riches, but I'm here today to tell you it is more than just riches God refers to in stewardship. And he, I do believe God expects us to honor him with our money and with our talents and with the time that he's given us. But as I studied it, God is less concerned with all of those things than he is this. What are you doing with the gospel? I didn't expect the message to go that way. I didn't expect me, my study to go that way. But you see, if, if the relationship truly is... We trust God when we are faithful to Him. He trusts us when He gives us something. I I believe that God can help us live without money. I I believe that God can help us live and get by on our daily needs. I mean, even the Apostle Paul said, For I have learned whatsoever state I am to be content, for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've learned how to be a base and I have learned how to abound. You see, he could do all of those things because Christ allowed him to do it. So so the money thing isn't quite so important and, and the time thing isn't so important and the talents thing isn't so important. God's primary concern... And the responsibility that each Christian has is this. Are you an effective witness of the gospel? If if you get that right, everything else kind of falls in line. The other day, me and my daughter, Caitlin, were at the grocery store and and we were checking out, you know how they have all those impulse buy things right there as you check out, right at eye level with the children, all of the candy right there on the second from the bottom shelf. Praise the Lord for that moron that thought of that concept. But uh, we were sitting there and Caitlin was getting unruly and Bailey was getting unruly. And, uh, I, and I, I just, I was getting frustrated. I'm sure you parents have been there before. And I said this, Caitlin, pay attention. It doesn't cost anything. And I'll never forget somebody in the line behind me started laughing. But you realize it doesn't cost anything to pay attention. And I've got good news for you tonight. The sermon has nothing to do with how much money you can spend this year in 2019. But it absolutely has to do with the gospel that God has entrusted with you. This evening I want to take a look at just... Three things that we learn from these verses, and I hope they'll be a blessing to you. As we study these few verses I've given you tonight, we'll see, first of all, that God has entrusted us with His highest priority. You see, if you have a really nice gift that you want to send to a relative, what shipping service are you going to use? 
You have all sorts of options. You could go to the United States Post, Postal Service. You, then you get there and there's like this formula for how to figure out what you want to ship your package. You've got one-day priority, two-day air, three-day shipping by ground. That one's insured. That one's not insured. The other day I was shipping something rather expensive, and I said, I don't necessarily need it to get there fast, but I need it to get there safe. And she said, well, you'll want insurance for sure. And so it, it, maybe you choose the United States Postal Service. That Brother Pickett's long been let go from there, so I'm sure they're more reliable now. Maybe you choose UPS. The last time I took a package to UPS, it was a very large package, and I left limping my soul. It was something like $90 it cost me to ship. And I, I called my mother-in-law. I'm like, is that normally? She's shipped stuff all over the nation. I said, is that normally how much it costs? Oh, yeah, they're really expensive. And maybe you choose FedEx because they have a cooler logo than the rest of them. I'm not sure. And then you have smaller people like DHL and all sorts of options. But if you want something to get where it's going, who do you choose? Well, I'd choose the most reliable one. If you really need it there, I would choose the most reliable one. And yet when God had a message to deliver, he didn't send an angel. You know why? Because angels aren't qualified. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, But ye shall receive power, after that ye shall be witnesses. You know what a witness must do? A witness must experience it. You cannot testify of something you've never felt. And so no angel, sure an angel could be used to say, hey, by the way, Jesus is going to be born to you, Mary. Uh, An angel could be used to say something like, he is not here for he is risen as he said. But you know what an angel cannot say? I remember the night at Timberline Baptist Youth Camp when I was 12 years old, when I bowed my head and I bent my knee and I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I was a rotten sinner when I knelt my knee and I got back up a heaven-bound saint. No angel can say those words. He couldn't even send someone back from the dead. Maybe he could send someone back from heaven. You know what? There's a story in Luke chapter 14 where, where uh, there's a, uh, the rich man that died and went to hell and then the, uh, Lazarus is on the other side of, the, uh, of, of Abraham's bosom there and they're shouting back and forth. And, and once the man in hell realizes that there was no relief for him, he says, well, would you just send Lazarus back up and, and maybe tell my brethren that, that, that this place exists and they should trust in the Lord. And, and, and Abraham says, that, that, that's not going to work. If they're not going to believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe the one be risen from the dead. You see, there were all sorts of options, but the one option God chose to go with was you. And it's his highest priority. For the Bible does not say, for the Son of Man has come to help your checking account. The Bible does not say, for the Son of Man has come to give good morals to all. Yeah, I believe Jesus taught morals. I believe Jesus helps us financially. I think you can study his teachings on that and and learn some things. But the Bible says in the book of Luke, for the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus' highest priority is the gospel. And you are his delivery service. If it is God's highest priority... The question must be asked, 
do we prioritize it in the same way that God does? It's God's most important thing. You see, God's not up in heaven wondering if the world's going to go round tomorrow. Everything's upheld by the word of his power. God's not worried if the sun's going to come up. God's not worried if the raven's going to have food. I believe that God is so powerful. He's just happened to make everything so perfectly that it fits together that the whole world just rests on the very day he said, let there be light. And he said, I'm going to create the animals. And I believe he made it so perfectly that everything just happens by nature. And yet something as important as the gospel does not occur naturally. It's only by us the message gets out. It's God's highest priority. What's our highest priority? You say, Brother Andrew, I believe getting the gospel out is our highest priority. Okay. I don't say this to criticize because I am as guilty as any. The, one of the easiest ways to learn what your highest priority is, is your search history. Or your latest social media posts. Like I'm not criticizing you because I've been looking up boats. <laughs> but I'm here today to tell you, I have spent way too much time looking at that than I have actually aligning myself with what God's highest priority is. Maybe your highest priority could be indicated by your checking account and what it's going to. Look, I'm not criticizing you. I'm saying that something's broken when God's highest priority probably doesn't even rank in our top three. The question must be asked, if this is so important to God and we are the only plan, you see, God didn't make a plan B and God didn't make a plan C. We are the only method for which the world will be reached with the gospel. If that is the only way it will happen, if it's so important to God, why could we care less? The question must be asked, do we prioritize it as much as the Lord does? I've had uh, two jobs before I came on staff here at the church. The first job I had was at Purcelli Cutting Horses. I've told y'all several stories about that before. Um, And one of the things that uh, Brother Purcelli told me the very first day I went to work for him, he said, I was 12 years old. We talked to him and said, hey, Brother Jimmy, I'll I'll work for you for an entire year. I won't make any money. I just want to come and learn what you do. And I want to be busy. And so he let me come and bother him for a, a whole year or a whole summer. And the only payment I had was getting lunch paid for. He would take me. And man, we got to go to some of the nicest places in Fort Worth to go eat lunch. I mean, it was just awesome. But that was my only salary. And at 12 years old, Brother Jimmy, on the first day of work, said this. Andrew, I don't care where you're walking, but wherever you walk, you need to walk fast. Back then, I guess I kind of drugged my feet a little bit. And I kind of had like a methodical pace to myself. And, and Brother Jimmy said, wherever you go, Andrew, you walk fast. And it's funny how that stuck with me over the years. If you ever watch me and my wife walk on like a date or something, I'm usually about three strides in front of her. And my thing is, if you're able to keep up with my pace, why don't you just catch up and then keep up with my pace? But, but you see, I, I just naturally walk fast now. I didn't ask any questions. You know why? Because J- Jimmy was the boss. 
And so from that point on, wherever I was going, I was walking fast. If I was going to saddle a horse, I was walking fast. If I was going to uh, use the restroom, I was walking fast. Faster in some of those cases, but I was walking fast. Whether I was going to put water in a trough or haul some hay, I was walking fast. You know why? Because that's what the boss wanted. Then I went to work at the House of Golf in Palmdale, California. It was a great job to have while we were in college. It bought me a lot of Little Caesars pizza. Praise the Lord. Amen. And uh, we were working there. I'll never forget the first day I came to work and they were showing me some things. And uh, Chris was one of their names, uh, the owner's names, and Sunshine was the other one. I'm not making that up. That was really her name. But Chris and Sunshine. And so uh, we worked there. And, and the very first day they pulled me aside and they said this. Now, Andrew, we know you love golf. I was working at a golf store. And there was a hitting bay there in the golf store. And, man, it was really tempting to just sit on that hitting bay all day and hit golf ball after golf ball. And they said, Andrew, we know you love golf. But when you're at the store and you're on clock, you need to be walking around doing something. Now, our store wasn't really all that big. And on a cold day or whatever, maybe a rainy day, not a lot of people are thinking about golf. And so there were many times where there was nothing to do and we had a TV in the corner of the building and, and we had the hitting bay in the back. So there was a tremendous temptation to just, just you know, go watch TV or, or maybe uh, go hit some golf balls. But they said, when you're on clock, you better be walking around doing something. And so what me and the other guy that was working there decided to do is we, we kind of teamed up. They always wanted the clothes, like the golf shirts, they always wanted them evenly spaced on the racks. You see like one hanger here, and then another two inches, another hanger, and then another two inches, another hanger. And we had time to do that because we didn't have a lot of foot traffic. And so what we decided to do, we came up with this plan. If their goal was to always have us busy, one guy would walk through and mess it up. <laughs> and then another guy would walk through and fix it. And you say, well, that's, that's just silly. No, no, no. That's what the boss has asked us to do. We had certain responsibilities we were supposed to do. We were supposed to wash the windows. We were supposed to vacuum. We were supposed to take the trash out every day. And we were doing all that. You know why? We don't ask questions because that's what the boss said to do. It doesn't matter if it seems silly to us. It doesn't matter if it seems ineffective to us. It does not matter. And God says, ye shall be witnesses. And yet we're like, but God, that doesn't really fit with me. No, that's just what the boss said to do. And it is his highest priority that we would preach the gospel to every creature. That we would reach out to let them know about the love of Christ. The first question that I think we ask has to be, do we prioritize it like he asks us to? And then secondly, the question that I feel needs to be asked is, do we practice it like we need to? You see, it's one thing to believe the world needs the gospel. I don't think anybody in this room would deny that. How many of y'all think that Jesus is the answer for the world today? I believe that with my whole heart. I believe that Jesus fixes the Middle East. I believe that Jesus fixes uh, the problems in Africa. I believe that Jesus fixes everywhere. Jesus is the answer. You throw Jesus in the middle of a problem, he just tends to work things out. That's what he does. And yet... We can believe that and we can say that and we can even give so that missionaries do that. But God does not say, ye shall effectively give to missions so that someone else can do your job for you. We believe it. 
So we, we, some, on some level, we do prioritize it, but are we practicing it as we should? And you know what I found as I began to study this out for this sermon? Anytime there is a command given, or at least most times there is command given to be a witness, or to reach the world with the gospel, it is always accompanied with a command to first be powerful. You say, what do you mean, Brother Brother Andrew? I mean this. Jesus says, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Now, go ye therefore. He says in Acts chapter 1, 8, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses. So oftentimes in scripture, it is not enough to just practice being a witness But it is important that we practice perfectly. You see, somebody said this years ago, practice makes perfect. No, that's that's wrong. Practice makes habitual. Perfect practice makes perfect. And and so the the Bible's command is, if we're going to be witnesses, we must first become powerful for the Lord. We must tap into what He says to do. In fact, Jesus tells His disciples, tarry ye here in Jerusalem. I know you've seen the resurrected Savior. I know you've got a story that is burning in your heart and you just want to tell everybody. I know you want to do that, but hold on. Tarry ye here until ye be endued with power from on high. Here's my question. Even if we're practicing it, are we making sure that we have power before we go? If... And I don't believe that we ought to be effective evangelists just on Saturday morning, by the way. I think it's kind of a week-long ordeal. I think the water cooler is just as good a place to get somebody saved. I mean, they didn't have water coolers in Jesus' day, but they had wells. And he happened to make a well visit there one day, and, and somebody got saved at the well. And, and so I think any place, any time is a good time to be a witness for the Lord. So here's the question. If that's true... How many times recently have we woken up in the morning and say, God, help me be a witness for you today? Because unless we're asking for his power, we're not going to be effective witnesses at all. Oh, we may be practicing witnesses, but we will not be powerful witnesses. Look, I'm not criticizing you. I'm saying I evaluated my own life and I have fallen short here. I do not prioritize it as God prioritizes it because it is his highest priority. And I certainly am not practicing it the way the master expects me to. Number two, not only should should we realize that God has entrusted us with his very highest priority, but number two, God has entrusted us with a specific realm of influence. This may sound odd, but if you look at the screens, Galatians chapter 2 verse 7 should be up there. The Bible says, but contrary wise, when they saw that the gospel of uncircumcision was committed unto me. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Galatians. It's a letter written to the church of Galatia. And he is saying, the gospel of the uncircumcision. Now, the uncircumcision would have represented the uh, majority uncircumcised world. That would have essentially been any Gentile. And so when Paul says the Uh, that this gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me. No, he's not saying he had a different gospel. He's just saying he had the same gospel to a different people. 
His gospel was primarily to the Gentile. And the Bible goes on to say, as the gospel of circumcision or the gospel to the Jewish people was unto Peter. Now we'll understand that Peter's ministry was primarily to the Jew. And Paul's ministry as a missionary was primarily to the uh, Gentile. Now, obviously, Peter had a dream, and that dream told him that uh, the gospel went to all nations and all people. And so we get that. But Paul makes this assertion that he had the gospel to a certain group of people, and Peter's gospel was to a certain group of people. Do you think there's any application there for you and me? I'm not saying that we ought to only target Americans. I'm not saying that we ought to only target uh, 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 whites or blacks. I'm not saying we ought to only target bus kids or, or, or church kids. I'm saying that you, just as Peter and just as Paul, have a sphere of influence that only you can reach. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit there uh, is there of circumcision, much ever way chiefly, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. You see, they had been given a group of people, the oracles of God, or the writers of Scripture, to reach out to them. And now Paul's saying, "But, but that doesn't mean the Gentile doesn't deserve to hear the gospel. You see, so even in Scripture we find that there are certain people that other men could reach that... Uh, Maybe somebody else couldn't reach. You know what? Andrew is so awesome to read about. You know why? Because he says, when he found out about Jesus, Andrew first findeth his own brother. I like it because Andrew didn't automatically have the confidence to go door knocking. He just went to the people that he knew. He first findeth his own brother. In fact, Luke chapter 8, the maniac of Gadara, he is healed and the demons are cast into the swine and he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I want to follow you wherever you go. And man, that would seem like something that Jesus would say, all right, well, I have no place to lay my head. The, the son of man has uh, uh, no, no home, but, but you can come with me if you want. And I think that that day that maniac would have followed him. But Jesus says, you better go home. And you find everyone at home you can tell. And you know what the Bible says? When Jesus came back, everyone received him gladly. Why? Well, before they had just kicked Jesus out of town. Now this maniac goes back home and everybody is so pumped up to hear about Jesus because of what this man has said about him. He didn't go to the farthest country. He went to his home and began to reach out. You know, there are people that you'll come into contact with tomorrow that I'll never see. And just the same, there's people that I'll come into contact with tomorrow that you'll never see. God's given us each a sphere of influence. And I like in the story of the maniac of Gadara how it says, everyone gladly received him because of what he had said about Jesus. If I said to your group of friends, tomorrow Jesus was coming back, how excited would they be because of your witness in their life? For this man, it... There was no doubt everybody was ready to hear and everybody was able, ready to see the miracle that God had done in his life. Are we effective witnesses for the Lord? Because God has given us only the people that we can reach. Sometimes we hear sermons preached on the world and it's overwhelming. 
You see, for God sent us to Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem and to the uttermost parts of the world. And it's very intimidating, like a book. You see, when I open a book, it's incredibly intimidating. I don't, don't enjoy reading. Uh, I'm not a fast reader. I'm one of those people that like to actually comprehend what they read and not just have a big number of books read at the end of the year. Uh, And so I get very intimidated when I open a book for the very first time. But you know the only way to read a book? One page at a time. Or first page, last page, but whatever you want. You see, you've got to start with one. I'm not asking you tomorrow to become the Apostle Paul. I'm just simply suggesting we may try to be like Andrew. Just first find your own brother. Find the person nearest to you that you know is lost and confront them with their need of salvation. I'm telling you, there's going to be a reckoning one day when we're standing at the judgment seat of Christ and we realize that the people that were closest to us here on earth are not at that judgment. They're at the other judgment. Do we prioritize it like the Lord prioritizes it? Because God has entrusted us with his highest priority. God has entrusted us with a specific group or a specific sphere of influence. And then thirdly, God has entrusted us with a limited amount of time. We went into Brother Billy's hospital room, was it two days ago, Dad? We went in there and he's, he's, he's not doing well. Pray for Brother Billy. He's He's coughing real bad, and I don't know if you've never had ever had pneumonia, but I'm telling you, even when I had it, I think I just had a case of walking pneumonia. But you get into a coughing spell, and you feel like you've just run a marathon. You may have only coughed two or three times, but the sickness just takes it out of you. And Brother Billy was there sitting up in his chair, and and he pointed over to his Bible that was on his nightstand. He said, "Preacher, I've been reading in James about the grass that withers and the flower that fades." You see, even in his condition, he realizes that life is a vapor. And it's very apparent to him right now as as he's sick. But sometimes in our health and in our normal everyday life, we forget that we only have a brief time on earth. What is man's life? It is but a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. You only have a small time here on earth. Our verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 uses a term, and I may be getting into the weeds by reading this to you and trying to explain it to you, but the Bible says, For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward, but if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. Now, most every word in that verse is very plain and very easy to understand, but dispensation is one that is not. I had probably never even heard of that word until I went to Bible college. Biblically speaking, when you study it, the word is only used just a handful of time in Scripture. And as I studied out, this surprised me to to find out what the word actually means. Dispensation, biblically, means this. The office of a steward. (laughs) I had no idea. Now, I know what it means theologically, and we'll get there in just a moment. But biblically, the word is used to describe the office of... Of a steward. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is, I have been stewarded. I have been given the responsibility for these people in this time. This is my sphere of influence that I can reach with the gospel. That's what the word means biblically. The Bible mentions it in 
uh, Ephesians chapter 3, If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, his role as steward was to steward the grace of God or the message of the grace of God to others. Colossians chapter 1, the Bible says, Whereof I am also made a minister according to the dispensation of God. He was the steward of the message of God, uh, God's Son dying on the cross, the gospel. It is the divinely appointed office or stewarding of the grace of God. Now, that's what it means biblically. You say, Brother Andrew, why are you doing this? Because I feel like if you've been at church for 25 years, it's about time we learn what some of these hard Bible words mean. And so, dispensation in Bible means the, the office or the divinely appointed office of a steward. Now, here's what it means theologically. Because it doesn't mean the same thing. Theologically. Theologic, be, the, theology being the, the study, the systematic study of Scripture. The, you could call it the study of God proper. So what is that? Theologically, we use this term to describe different segments of time. And the way that God dealt with his people. Or the purposes for which God was carrying out in a given segment of time. Now, the segments of time and the amount on them vary greatly. Uh, there's one that would say that there are three dispensations. You have uh, the patriarchal. That would have been men like Abraham and, and, and Noah and those type of men that, that were the patriarchs of the faith. And God spoke to them and, and the faith was ushered to them. And, and so God used them, the patriarchal dispensation. The second dispensation in this particular case would be the law of uh, the dispensation of the law or the Mosaic dispensation. What that means is it was patriarchal. God used certain men in certain times until the law came through Moses. That was the second dispensation. A third dispensation would have been when Jesus came. He fulfilled the law, ended that dispensation uh, without the uh, death of a testator. There is no testament that that would have been fulfilled at the cross. And so from then on, it's cross or, or the Christ to the end. So that theory would be three primary dispensations. Now, there's another theory that has four. That would be Adam to Abraham, Abraham to Moses, Moses to Jesus and Jesus to the end. Because in every one of those time periods, we see God doing something unique to fulfill his purpose. Uh, and then Schofield, for instance, thinks that there are seven dispensations. Now, I don't necessarily believe that, but Schofield was a smart guy. It just doesn't mean he was right about everything. But so, so there are many theories on dispensations. But what you need to understand is, the, theologically, dispensation speaks of time periods. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him. So it speaks of time periods in theology. And the problem arises when you think that God's inner workings with men and God's dealings with men and God's uh, uh, purpose being carried out differed in terms of salvation. Here's what I believe. In every dispensation, salvation or the way to salvation remained the same. Don't get this wrong. Don't get this confused because this is where a lot of people do get in the weeds. 
Grace is the constant in all dispensations. Adam would have been saved the same way that Andrew was saved. By looking towards the Messiah. Now, sure, we're on different sides of the timeline, but we're both looking to Jesus for salvation. And Abraham, sure, he had works. And sure, he was a good man. But works did not justify Abraham. It was faith that followed after God that justified Abraham. And so faith by Jesus, or faith in Jesus, salvation by faith in grace is the only way of salvation in every dispensation. I hope you learned something tonight because now we completely depart from that topic. Dispensation ought to bring to our mind the reality that we're in the last one. No person would disagree with the fact that the next thing on the list is Christ. Uh, Sure, there's some disparity between beliefs on when he's coming. But I believe the next thing that's going to happen is Jesus is going to come back for his church. The rapture is the next thing that's going to happen. We're at the end of it. And you're talking to the king of procrastination. I mean, I am a pro at it. In college, I would wait till the night before to write three-page papers. You know why? Because my mind functions better until 4 a.m. in the morning. Now, in class the next day, it suffers a little bit. But, man, I'm good at 4 a.m. And so I would procrastinate and wait. And then I'm, you know, hey, Mom, can you proofread this for me? And I was, I mean, I, I was king of procrastination. But you know what I've learned in my years and years and years of experience in procrastination? It only works when you know the date. Because when you walk in and the teacher says, hey, pop quiz, everyone. I haven't read anything. I've not studied anything. I mean, I was looking at the syllabus and I was seeing that there's a test maybe in two weeks or I was seeing that there's a project due. I didn't know we were going to take account on where we should be in our book reading by now. I mean, this is a real problem because I procrastinated. You know what the next thing that's going to happen is? The pop quiz. No man knoweth when the Son of Man's going to return. No man knoweth. And I think what we've done is we've just become accustomed to procrastinating. I'll become a better witness maybe next year. Or maybe when the kids get out of the house and we don't have so, so, much, so many ball games. Or, or you know, I, I work so much. I only have so much family time. By the way, I'm not sure why our announcements are on the screen, but whatever. Welcome! <laughs> But, but I'm so confused. <laughs> there we go. I entrusted them with one job and they're failing miserably. <laughs> Brother Charlie, we need to talk to him. Brother John, did John leave to go look? Oh, oh, see, the pop quiz is about to happen up there. Brother John is going. You can hear the steps like on Jurassic Park. You know the doom. Boom, you can see Brother John headed up that way. You see, we procrastinate in this area. The best way to get someone to talk to you at the door is number one, be at the door. And then number two, have your cute children with you. You say, I don't believe it. You say, Brother Andrew, we just don't get very much family time. There is no better witnessing partner than your cute family. 
And my point is this. God has entrusted us. And we don't know when it's going to end. And if we just start reading the tea leaves, it could be today. And we live in this idea that, you know, it's not going to be in our time period. But maybe one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul was such a good witness is he truly believed Jesus would be back before he died. Maybe that's why he was a good witness, because he believed in the the return of Jesus, and he wanted to be a a good witness to those around him. Where are you going to be tomorrow that somebody needs to hear the gospel? God has entrusted only us with this. I hate to break it to you, the Latter-day Saints aren't doing it. I hate to break it to you, the Mormons aren't doing it. they, They got a lot of effort, sure, they pedal a lot of miles, but they're not doing it. The Catholic Church is not doing it. We have the gospel. It was hand-delivered to us by our Savior. What are we doing with it?